The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We've been trying to consider the kingdom of heaven, and we'd like to continue that line of thought this morning. The church is the primary manifestation of the kingdom of God, and that uh, is the primary presentation of the church of Jesus in the Gospels. He only used the word ecclesia of the church twice in the four Gospels, but he referred to the kingdom of God over 90 times. And Jesus certainly presented to his disciples a kingdom mindset, and we want to have that same kingdom mindset. I'd like to go to John chapter 3 to introduce our thoughts this morning about beginning to enter into the kingdom, enter into the kingdom. And uh, today may be somewhat of a, a preface, somewhat of a uh, introduction uh, to what we hope to consider in a few weeks, Lord willing. Uh, that I believe is very important uh, to understand, particularly in the kingdom of heaven, which is the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, and understanding that that is about many of the different kingdom experiences of God's people. And one of the most important things to keep in mind as we consider that parable, but some other things as well, is that we have to be very diligent to enter into the kingdom, but also to press into the kingdom. Because it's not easy. It's not easy living a life of discipleship and service to the Lord. <clears throat> so in John chapter 3, this conversation here with Nicodemus, and he introduces the topic of the new birth in John chapter 3 and in verse 3. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And that's certainly true in, in a true eternal heaven sense. There's nobody that will be allowed into the presence of God in the third heaven in the eternal kingdom uh, unless his soul has been changed and regenerated and had been made a new creature in his heart. But then he continues on in verse 5 and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we have to be born again to go to heaven, but we also have to have uh, the, the new birth to have that spiritual nature to have a desire to press into the spiritual kingdom because this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not a natural kingdom. It's not low here. It's not low there. It's a spiritual kingdom, and the only way that you can see or perceive or the, even the only way that you can enter into a spiritual kingdom is that you have the spirit, right? Right? So <clears throat> I'd like to go um, to, John, uh, to Mark chapter 4 to uh, begin to introduce the, uh, the parable of the sower just so you can kind of have this in the back of your mind and hopefully, Lord willing, be meditating on this as we're leading up to it. In Mark chapter 4, uh, we're going <laughs> to primarily consider this the parable of the sower because that's how it's more commonly known, but more appropriately, it's really the parable of the soils. It's the parable of the different types of ground and the examination of different types of ground. But again, it's more commonly known as the parable of the sower 
But more appropriately, it's really the parable of the soils, or the parable of the, the grounds. Mark chapter 4 and verse 3. <clears throat> Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sowed. Some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth, when the sun was laid up, and it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and it did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. Now skip to verse 13. <clears throat> Jesus says unto them, Know ye not this parable, how then will you know all parables? And I think that phrase right there gives us the significance of this particular parable, and it to a large degree, and hopefully we'll expound on this more in a later message, but to a large degree, this parable is one of the keys to the kingdom. It's a key that unlocks so many spiritual truths when you understand that all four of these grounds, they hear the word and there is a variance and a difference of kingdom experiences for God's children here in this world. And some of God's children struggle with what we're going to see in just a moment with the broad way. They struggle with the temptations of this world, but some are faithful and diligent to press into the kingdom and to be that good ground, 30, 60, and even 100-fold good ground, to press into the kingdom. And particularly, we want to think about that today in the context of the abundant life, okay, the abundant life. And some of God's children are not going to lay hold on that abundant life and experience the joy that God has the fullness of joy that God has for his children here in time because there are things that are trying to deceive them and lead them on a path that is leading to destruction, okay? Now, one good thing about the parable of the soils is that God was so gracious to explain it to us. <laughs> Many parables, he didn't do that, but this particular one he did. So there in verse 13, he said, know you not this parable, how then will you know all parables? So it's very important that we understand this parable to understand many of these other parables about the kingdom of heaven. The sower soweth the word, and these uh, are they that uh, went by the wayside where the word was sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their heart. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, when they have heard the word, they immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and they endure for a time, and afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entereth in, and choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100-fold. 
So there is a very uh, different way that God's children, based on their particular station of life and an individual time, can receive God's word and a difference in which they apply that word and therefore there is a difference in the way that they experience the eternal life they have in Jesus Christ. There's a different way that they have assurance and peace and hope and confidence in that and some children of God struggle their whole life with that. Why? Because they're making bad decisions. Okay, they, they are being enticed to go the broad way. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And it's so important to understand that this whole Sermon on the Mount is preached to God's disciples, to Christ's <laughs> disciples. We find that in the beginning of this in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, so this was all to the disciples. Those that he had called out of walks of life, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. John, James, Peter, Andrew, Matthew, and all the rest of them. These are the disciples of Christ. And he tells them, Matthew chapter 7, and in verse 13, enter ye. Who's he talking to? The disciples, right? He's not talking to the world, he's talking to the disciples. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Or again, who's he talking to? He's talking to disciples. The, the narrow way is not an invitation for anyone to choose to follow Christ and to go to heaven. We know that there is not going to be a few people in heaven. It's an innumerable host, which no man can number. Every time that God's elect is talked about, it's talked about at a minimum of many, and most of the time, a multitude which no man can number. But the reality is that there are only going to be, in the scope of all of God's elect children that are going to be in heaven, there's only going to be a few of them that are walking in diligent, faithful discipleship in the narrow way. Think about the, the allocation <clears throat> of that parable of the sower right there. Now, this is not straight up percentages that, <laughs> that all of God's elect and, and uh, the good ground is a straight up 25%, but it gives you a general idea of a general disposition of God's children, right? But only one of those four grounds is considered good ground. That's only 25% of everybody. And then only, if that's an even allocation in the 25%, how, much, how many of all of the people that heard the word is 100-fold good ground? Only 8%, right? Only 8%. And we'll expound on this a little bit further, but think about all of the different um, instances where there's only a few that are in faithful discipleship to the Lord. Think about those 10 lepers that are cleansed. <laughs> How many of those 10 lepers came back to give glory to God? Just one of them. Just one of them, right? Uh, there are so many instances where those that are walking in the straight gate is not the large majority. And why? Why is that? Because it's hard. Because it's narrow. Because it's straight. The, I mean, the broad gate's easy, isn't it? It has plenty of width. You can, you can carry anything in there you want with you. 
And it's eat, our natural desire, our natural flesh gravitates toward that. It, it gravitates toward the things of the world. It's easy to go in there, but it's, it's difficult to lay down the things of the world and then to go in that narrow gate that's, that's only big enough for you. You know, I've tried to think about uh, a mental image of that in times past, and some people want to go through that narrow gate carrying uh, their suitcases and carrying everything with them. I think it's just big enough for your shoulders and you can't fit anything else through that gate. And if you try to, you ain't going to fit. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's essentially what the rich young ruler tried to do, didn't he? He wanted to carry all of his riches with him. And then he got to the narrow gate. He's like, oh, wait a minute. I can't fit. <laughs> so then what do I want more? Do I want to follow Christ in the straight gate of discipleship? Or do I want to relish in all these riches that I have? And unfortunately, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he said, man, I love my riches too much. Mm -hmm. the, the narrow way was too narrow for him, <laughs> okay? The narrow way was too narrow for him. But I want you to see the destination of these two, these two ways and these two gates. The broad gate, or the wide gate rather, in the broad way, it leads to destruction. Now, does it lead to eternal hell in the lake of fire? That's not what it's talking about, okay? But if we choose to follow the pathway of this world, we will end up just like, just as miserable as King Solomon was when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Because what did he choose? Boy, he had lived the abundant life. He was in the straight gate in the narrow way, but then he got enticed. He got enticed by the things of the world. He indulged in everything of the world and he is an old, miserable, bitter, depressed old man. Vanity of vanities. There's nothing good under the sun. Life is horrible. Yeah, it's horrible for you. Why? Because you're living in the broad way. Just like the, the prodigal son. He, he, he was miserable down in the pig pen. Why? Because he left the father's house. He left fellowship with a good, loving, godly father, and there's no joy for the child of God down in the pig pen. <laughs> there's no joy for the child of God in the world, okay? And if you want to know what a life of this destruction looks like, go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Go read how miserable Solomon was. And then we look at the example of someone like Jonah. He knew what the right thing to do was, but what did he do? He chose to rebel against the commandments of God, and then uh, God sent a whale to swallow him, and he ended up, you know, he was in a physical location down in the bowels between a kidney and a liver and an intestine, I guess, of the, of the whale. And that's a bad place to be. But, but the, his physical location wasn't why he said out of the belly of hell, I cried a little. It wasn't his physical location and his physical pain of why he felt that way. He was under the judgment of God because of disobedience. And he said, this feels like hell to me. Listen, a child of God can live in hell on earth when they choose to rebel against God. Okay? But the other side of that is, oh, we can live such an abundant, joyful life in the straight gate and the narrow way. Look at the destination of the straight gate and the narrow, which leadeth unto life. Does it lead to heaven? No. You're only going to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Only by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is any of God's children going to be in heaven. But John chapter 10 and in verse 10, he says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I am come that they might have life. Now he, now, he came into this world so all of God's children would have eternal life. And he came into this world to die, to save his people. He came to, that, that we would have eternal life. But he didn't just come so we would be miserable our entire life and have the eternal joys of heaven uh, at, at some later date after we die. He came that we might have life, but that we might have it more abundantly and how do we experience that abundant life in good ground discipleship how do we experience that by pressing into the straight gate and the narrow way okay and we're going to we're going to hit a lot of verses today i do that anyway i know bless y'all's heart the way i study and the way that I structure my messages, I know y'all can't ever keep up, but it's just, just the way I study, okay? Um, but today's even more than, num more than normal, all right? Because this is so important. I want you to see how, and, and this is just a sliver, okay? We could have a, a four-message series just on this right here. But I want you to see how clearly the Bible presents life and death for God's children here in our walk of discipleship. We're not talking about heaven, okay? But we are talking about either living the most abundant, joyful life in fellowship with Jesus. I'm thankful for the song that was called out this morning. Hand in hand, we walk each day. Walking hand in hand with Jesus every single day. But boy, you can live down in the belly of hell like Jonah, okay? If you are enticed by the broad way of this world. And there is life and death set before the child of God. And we can either walk in close communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ, or we can live in condemnation of the Lord if we choose to rebel against his commandments, okay? This is such an important thing to understand in the kingdom of heaven. Because so many people would say that along with eternal salvation and along with the new birth, God has pre-programmed obedience. He has pre-programmed everyone to act the exact same way. And anybody that doesn't act that way, they're really not even saved. Listen, many children of God, they, they have squandered the communion and fellowship with Jesus that they rightfully deserve. You know, it says there in the abundant life that that the thief, Jesus, I, mean, I mean Satan, Satan's the thief. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. You understand that every child of God is an heir of eternal, that you are a rightful heir of eternal life, but you are a rightful heir of the abundant life. It is yours. It was bought and paid for by the blood. Of, it is yours. And what does Satan want to do? He, wanna, he wants to steal something that is rightfully yours. Why would, you want to, why would you want to deprive yourself of something that is rightfully yours? <laughs> and Satan's only hope and desire is to steal something of the enjoyment and the peace and the assurance and the hope of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. He wants to steal as much of that inheritance, the earnest of that inheritance here in time as he can to make God's people miserable because 
Let me tell you, Satan knows where he's going. He knows he only has a short time, and his only hope is to try to quench the abundant life because he knows, he knows better than, than, any of, than any of us that we have eternal life, and he knows he can't touch us in eternal life, but boy, he can make us miserable here in time, all right? If we're not sober and we're not vigilant, put on the arm of God and all of those things. So to kind of summarize this thought, I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and <clears throat> I think we've seen in some previous messages, the way that God has presented this picture of the Old Testament, <clears throat> the nation of Israel, this picture of his people that have been chosen, that have been given special revelation, that have been given the covenant, that them being delivered from Egypt was solely by the power of God and by the blood of the Lamb that was applied to their doorpost. That was why God passed over they were delivered from Egypt solely by the sovereignty and the power of God, right? But once they got out of Egypt, there was no guarantee of their obedience once they got out of Egypt, was it? <laughs> I tell you, you, re you read the, uh, the account of them and all they did was complain. All they did was rebel against God. They get a little hungry. They get a little tired and they forget everything that God has done for them. But then you fast forward God promised them. God promised his people the promised land. <laughs> but out of the millions of people, you want to talk about a few entering into the straight gate, out of the millions of people that came out of Egypt, how many people went into that promised land of that first generation? Two. Two. Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses. Even Moses, the man who led him out. He got all up in the, in the flesh for a minute and struck that rock when he wasn't supposed to. And God said, you're not going to come into the promised land. And that promised land gives the picture of the church, of pressing into the kingdom. But then there were some people, there were some people that died in the wilderness. They didn't, they didn't enjoy a land that flowed with milk and honey. And why didn't they? Because of unbelief. Okay? But then there's some people that did believe the Lord. And they, came, they went into that land... And they enjoyed great blessings, but boy, they had to press into the promised land, didn't they? They had, to, they had to conquer Jericho. Then they messed up at Ai. Then they went into all these other ones. They had to press into the kingdom, and they had to uh, be purposeful to drive out the inhabitants of that land. And, but I want you to understand, all of Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage solely by the power of God, which is eternal salvation. But once they got out of Egypt, now we're looking at discipleship. Now we're looking at conditional discipleship. And we find that those people that were delivered out of Egypt, uh, depicting all of God's people, okay, there was a varying degree of faithfulness among those people, wasn't there? You know, think about Caleb, you know. Whole millions of people died in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. But, but Caleb, though, he believed the Lord. He believed him in the beginning. He suffered through those 40 years in the wilderness. And then they got in the land, and he said, you know what? I'm going to take that mountain that's rightfully mine. Again, something that was rightfully his. He said, you know what? It's mine, and I'm going to go take it. 85-year-old man, he went, over, went up there and whooped all the, uh, all the people that were, that were occupying that mountain. And boy... Caleb lived the abundant life, didn't he, in the promised land? <laughs> but there were some people that didn't. 
because of unbelief. All right? So now they've been delivered from Egypt. All God's people have been saved by grace. But then he tells them, and this is in very much detail in Leviticus 26, all right? If you want to read the detail of this, but this is the summary of it. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil, okay? Conditional discipleship. If you, if you be... Uh, if you be willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. That's what he said in Isaiah uh, chapter 1, and that was a couple hundred years later, but the principle still applies. If you be willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. But hey, watch out now. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. So he says, look, I'm setting before you life and death, blessing and cursing. In that day, verse 16, in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that thou mayest live and multiply. Now, uh, the, the, the Old Testament nation of Israel um, was a natural kingdom depicting a spiritual kingdom. But if you didn't obey the commandments of the Lord in the natural kingdom of the Old Testament, what, did, what, what was most of the punishments for disobeying? You lost your natural life, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's not speaking figuratively there. <laughs> Most things, if you disobey God's commandment, somebody's going to stone you. Somebody's going to kill you. But this is teaching a spiritual lesson, right? So if you obey me, you're going to live. And guess what? You're not just going to live. You're going to live the abundant life. Look at this beautiful land that I've provided for you. This land that flows with milk and honey. You're going to have wells that you didn't dig. You're going to have vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to have all these blessings in the kingdom. All these blessings in the promised land. But if thine heart turn away so thou wilt not hear and shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day that I have set before you life and death and blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. Choose the abundant life. Choose life that thou and thy seed may live. Now, what's the abundant life? <laughs> it's pretty simple right there, isn't it? Love the Lord thy God. Walk in his ways. Obey his commandments. And what's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, right? That is how we lay hold on eternal life. All right. <clears throat> you probably don't want to turn to all these. Y'all may just want to listen if you want to jot these down. But I want you to see the, the, con the contrast between life and death and blessing and cursing that is in either choosing the broad way, or choosing the abundant life, okay? Romans chapter 8, and in verse 6, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, that's, that's a struggle for us, isn't it? Why? Because we still have that carnal mind. We still have that nature that's at enmity with God. It says in verse... Uh, Verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity with God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we still have that nature inside of us. We have faith and we have the spirit that without faith it's impossible to please him. 
So isn't, isn't that interesting? We have this conflict, and that's what he just got done talking about in Romans chapter 7. That conflict to where without faith it's impossible to please. We please him by faith, but then we have this other nature that can't please God. And you have that continual warfare. Now, I do want to give the caveat. I don't want to give the impression that Jesus borns you again and then he says, it's totally up to you to figure this out the rest of your life. No, it's God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we know what his good pleasure is. <laughs> it's for you to obey. But the child of the father will allow the child to make decisions. And if they make bad decisions, the, father's not, the father can't live the son's life for him. That's what I'm saying. No, it's up to them. And if they go the wrong way, what does a good parent do? They chastise them. And that's, that's, we need to make sure we understand that when it uses language like destruction and death and hell, you want to know what that's actually an evidence of? It's an evidence of God's love for us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Okay? So God directs us. God directs us to the straight gate. He guides us by his Holy Spirit. And then when we go the wrong way, he convicts us. But he doesn't live our life for us. It's not pre-programmed. He doesn't do it for us, but he always guides us in the way of discipleship. He always guides us toward that straight gate. But this challenge, though, is we have this old nature that's trying to pull us in the opposite direction. Okay? Let's be very specific. <clears throat> Covetousness. 1 Timothy chapter 6. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction. Again, what's the destination of the broad way? Destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil which some have coveted after and have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's the story of the rich young ruler, isn't it? He went away, he's a child of God. God, Jesus beholding him, loved him, but he went away sorrowful. Why? Why? Because he wasn't willing to drop the riches to press into that straight gate. There wasn't enough room for his riches and him in that narrow way. There wasn't enough room for it. And he said, you know what? I, I've worked too hard. I've built my business too much, I'm not willing to give it up. And what did it cause? He pierced himself through with sorrow. And I certainly hope that sorrow came to a point where he was uh, overwhelmed with that to where he repented. We're not told that, but I sure hope he did. I know, he, I know if he didn't, he was going to live the Solomon life. <laughs> he was going to be miserable just like Solomon. So we see covetousness, and that's that's a lot of the uh, the deceitfulness of riches, that's a lot of the problems in the thorny ground, by the way, of why people become unprofitable and unfruitful. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 18, he's speaking to disciples, and um, he uses um, hell language, all right? And again, it's hard for us to kind of understand the severity of God's judgment when we choose to rebel against him. And it's very important here in Matthew 18 to, to be reminded that 
These are disciples he's talking to here, just like he is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, and the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he's, he's talking to disciples, okay? He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the unregenerate. He's talking to disciples. And he tells them, in other words, he says, if you offend one of these little ones, woe unto you. And he expounds on that. But then he says in verse 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, and it's cast, cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than two hands or two feet be cast into everlasting fire. Now, is he saying if you don't act right and you don't uh, make the appropriate, drastic spiritual decisions to remove things in your life, that, that you're going to go to hell? Well, no, right? Heaven and hell is solely by the blood of Jesus. But you're going to deprive yourself. He said, look, it's better for you to give up the, you know, think about the rich young ruler. He's saying it's better for you to give up these things and press into the kingdom without them than for you to still have them. Now, is it better for you to have all these riches and be miserable or for you to give up the riches and press into the kingdom, right? He says it's better for you to enter into life. What life is he talking about? The abundant life. But the other end of the spectrum, though, is he says if you're not willing to make those sacrifices, be cast into everlasting fire. He's using hell language. You see that? He's using hell language. Why? Because there's nothing that is closer. Okay, life and death. Death is the absence of life, right? I think that would probably be the definition of death. You have life. If you don't have life, you're dead. Okay? Now, we, we think about life in a natural life sense that if you're dead, you're dead, you don't have any life. Well, you understand, right, that the unregenerate, they have an eternal soul. It's not like they're going to cease to exist. No, they have an eternal soul that will be conscious, that will be aware for all of eternity. What is the definition of the lake of fire and hell? It's a place of judgment from God because of sin, right? Now, the child of God will never experience that in eternity. But here in time, can the child of God be in a position where they are facing the judgment and the removal of God's presence because of their sin and disobedience? And it feels to them as close as they can ever get to the light because they're not going to be there in eternity. But to them, it's as close as they'll ever get to everlasting fire. I don't know if you've ever been there. I hope you haven't. I hope you've lived in the straight gate and the narrow way of discipleship, walking hand in hand with Jesus, where you have not, and I don't think I've had it as bad as Jonah. I really don't. But if you've ever felt that severe condemnation of the Lord when you know you were in the wrong, there's a reason why that prodigal son says, you know what, I just want to go back to the father's house and be like one of the hired servants. There's no worse feeling for the child of God than that conviction and conduct. And, and you want to know what's worse? He describes God's children as being dead. Why are we dead? Because we have been removed from the fellowship of Christ, who, who is the life. It's the absence of life. What are you in? If you're not living the abundant life, what is the absence of, of life? It's death, isn't it? It's a place where you are in condemnation 
of the Lord. And there is no more miserable feeling for the child of God than to know that you are, that God looks at you with disappointment. If you think about that look that, that Jesus gave Peter when he denied him three times. And he went out and he wept some bitter tears. I think he, he felt some flames of temporal judgment when he went out and wept those bitter tears. Why? Because it was the condemnation in his heart. You remember the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's in your heart. Boy, can you imagine the condemnation of Peter's heart when he went out and wept those bitter tears? When he saw Jesus look at him with those sad disappointed, dejected eyes, right? What's worse than anything? The, the disappointed, condemning look of someone that you love. That's why Peter went out and wept bitter tears, okay? And there's nothing more miserable for the child of God than that. Okay, so now the prodigal son, what did the, uh, Luke 15, what did the father say when he finally came back? My son who was dead is alive again. Now, he was alive the whole time, wasn't he? He was alive the whole time. But boy, he was not living the joys of the abundant life in the father's house. He was dead to fellowship with his father. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ will give thee life. We're slumbering and sleeping. And, and you can't really tell from a distance if someone's sleeping... You can't tell if they're alive or dead. They look the same as dead folks, right? So he says, look, wake up. You have life. You're not, you're not unregenerate. You're not dead. Wake up. Wake up and Christ will give you life. I want to highlight quite a few verses in Proverbs. Proverbs um, chapter 14 and in verse 12, there's a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That our natural gravitation is to do things that are going to lead us to the broad way that leads to death. And that's why much of Proverbs is counseling against that. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3, I was my father's son. So David is teaching Solomon here. I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also... And said, let, mine heart, uh, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. And live. Now, what's he trying to protect him from? The strange woman is one of them. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 12. This is just speaking of the wicked in general. To deliver thee from the way of the evil man. What does deliverance mean? It means salvation. Time salvation is deliverance. What are you being saved from? You know, there are many people that just because they've been in the wrong crowd, you understand that if you drive somebody uh, to a convenience store and they, they're the ones that go in and they rob the store, but you drove them there, guess what? You're going to be uh, convicted of the same crime as a conspiracy. How many, how many good kids have been caught up in the wrong crowd? They didn't want to go rob a store, right? But they were in the car and they go to jail. Why? Because you didn't listen to the counsel of your parents to stay away from those people. Stay away. This is very practical, <laughs> right? It's not just, a, it's, now it, it has a spiritual application, but you need to forsake the counsel and, and the, the, 
the environment of evil people. And then the strange woman to deliver you, to save you. If you listen to the words that I'm telling you, you will be saved from destruction and peril by being enticed by the strange woman. And look specifically what the, the connection uh, of her to death is. Verse 18, for her house inclineth unto death and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither, hold, neither take they hold of the path of life. I'll tell you, if you're enticed by the strange one, you can't ever go back. You, cannot, you have forfeited many blessings in the kingdom of God. Now, you can repent, but you have forfeited many blessings that you will never get back if you are enticed by the strange woman. Okay? Um, Proverbs 23. Discipline of children. Proverbs 23, verse 13. With, withhold not correction from the child. If thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Now, that doesn't mean beating him with a steel rod. That, that word rod literally means a switch. Correction. Literally means a switch, all right? So, we're always against child abuse, but correcting a child with a switch is not child abuse, all right? But notice verse 14. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now, the, the way that you raise your children, does it have any bearing on their eternal destination? No, of course not. That's solely in the, in the covenant and the blood of Jesus. But boy, if you neglect, which by the way is a side note, I think a lot of the mess, well, you can't, you can't tie it to one thing at all. It's a cascading effect. But one of the things that has happened in the last 30, 40 years is a lack of discipline and a lack of correction. And look where we're at with my generation that primarily has been raised with no corrective rod at all. Look where we're at. <laughs> how, many of, uh, how many people who, if they would have had discipline, would have been living a much more abundant life, but instead they didn't have discipline when they were younger, and now they are going down the pathways of hell. <laughs> Children of God. Why? Because their parents didn't discipline them effectively. Now, we're not talking about beating kids because you get upset. What, how do you discipline a child? How do you correct a child? You tell them what they did wrong. You discipline them, and then you hug them, and you tell them that you love them after, and tell them not do it again. Because that's what God does to us. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Boy, aren't you glad that God's long-suffering and he doesn't fly off at the handle the way we do? Which is kind of a little side note, by the way. Uh, and I'll say this with all the reverence in the world. God didn't fly off at the handle. But there was a couple times in the wilderness where the Lord said, I'm done with these folks. I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm starting over with you, Moses. <laughs> you know, I am done with these people. And then Moses, thankfully, he interceded and said, Lord, remember your covenant. <laughs> Lord, remember your promise. You, you said the Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah. I'm Levi. Your word's important. Your covenant's so, so Moses kind of interceded when the Lord was like, you know what? These stubborn kids. <laughs> I'm so tired of these kids that aren't acting right. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And aren't you glad that the Lord could do that any single day the way we act? <laughs> but thankfully Moses, a picture of Jesus, intercedes and said, no, no, no. Remember you love them. Right? <laughs> don't, don't you have to have the, the spouse there sometimes when the you know, when, when, the, when the dad is upset with the kid, it's like, oh, man, I, I can't believe they did that. And then the, the loving wife has to be, now, remember, you love them now. 
<laughs> That's essentially what Moses was doing. The, the father was like, man, these, these stubborn kids, I can't stand them. And, the, and then Moses was there, now remember you love them. <laughs> remember they're your kids. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. We'll chastise them. <laughs> Aren't you glad the Lord didn't fly off the handle the way we do? Okay. But <clears throat> there is much peril. There is much peril for God's children when they don't have appropriate discipline. Okay. Um, Revelation chapter 3 and in verse 1, the church at Sardis had a name that they lived, but they were dead. Okay? This is a very practical one that we don't have time to elaborate on. Proverbs 18 and verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. How much death in the broad way has been heaped on God's children because we didn't control our speech, because we didn't control our tongue, okay? <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 6, Commending the widows indeed, he's now contrasting that with the young widows that, uh, that are living in pleasure. That young widow that lives in pleasure, he says that she is dead while she liveth, right? This is talking about temporal salvation, you see? This is talking about the abundant life or living in God's judgment in death, Okay? Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, people that have already been redeemed by the blood, he says you need to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Along the same lines, James chapter 2 and verse 17, faith without works is dead. Now that doesn't mean if you don't have works, it doesn't mean you don't have faith. The context there is justification by works. In the opinion of others, if you profess to be a Christian, but you live like the world, in their mind, in their opinion of you, your faith is worthless. It's dead, okay? James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. If you convert a sinner from the error of his ways, you shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Now, do you have the ability to pluck anyone from the flames of the lake of fire? No, you don't. But boy, you can save them from temporal judgment by saying, listen, obey the word of God, you see? Pull them back from the Broadway. And this is a bigger discussion that we don't have time to elaborate on, but in 1 John 5, verses 16 to 17, he's talking about a sin unto death and then a sin not unto death. You see, there are some sins that will remove you from fellowship with the church, but there's also some sins that will puts you in dangerous peril of losing your natural life, by the way. Strange woman, talks about the strange woman in Proverbs. It essentially says that you are in danger of losing your natural life because there's a good chance her husband may come home and he'll kill you. It says that in Proverbs, all right? There are some sins that you, and think about people that are on drugs. You are living a pathway in the broad way that is putting a higher probability that you're going to lose your natural life at an earlier age than if you never did those drugs at all, right? That's in a natural sense. But then there are some sins where, as the church, we have to remove ourselves from them to protect the integrity of the body as a whole. Now, now that was focusing on the death, all right? And I'm sorry I didn't give myself enough time to elaborate on the life the way that I want to, all right? But... <clears throat> 
In John chapter 17 and in verse 3, this is life eternal. This is life eternal. That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now notice the distinction there. We have eternal life by the blood of Jesus, but he uses this language here as life eternal. What is the blessed assurance? What, what, is, what, is, uh, what is the abundant life characterized by? What is Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the abundant life is close, intimate communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Like we said earlier, walking hand in hand with Jesus every day and knowing, and we, mis we make mistakes every day, we fail the Lord every day, but not living in open rebellion to him where I know that I'm walking in close, I can feel my Savior near. You know, I love singing that, that song, I, I, I want to feel my Savior near when I'm dying. I don't want to wait till I'm dying to feel my Savior. I want to feel my Savior near while I'm living. That, that's the abundant life, essentially, is feeling my Savior near on a day in and a day out. But it's knowing Christ. It's knowing Jesus. We've been given eternal life by the blood of Jesus, but it is experiencing and feeling that abundant life right here and right now. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Bodily exercise, verse 8, profiteth a little bit, but godliness is profitable in all things. Having the promise of the life that now is and the promise of the life that is to come. Now, we have a natural life, right? But the life that now is is the abundant life. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 12. Fight the good fight and lay hold on eternal life. You see, that's what the abundant life is. We have eternal life by the blood of Jesus, but the abundant life is not walking around every day. There's so many children of God that are walking around being told by preachers that if you didn't pray a prayer just right, if you didn't do something just right, you're going to go out, you're going to get hit by a bus, and you're going to go to hell. They don't, have a, they don't have any kind of a hold on eternal life because the preacher says you don't have it at all. What, what is the, the purpose of the gospel? It's to tell you, you have eternal life. Now go grasp it with both hands and hang on the best you can, right? Why? Because this world's trying to get your hands off of it. <laughs> Satan's trying to steal it from you. You, you put your hand, and how, by the way, how do you lay hold on eternal life? You lay hold on Jesus. You hear me? You lay hold on Jesus, and you, you don't let go. <laughs> I held him, and I would not let him go. You lay hold on eternal life by laying hold on Jesus, okay? Okay. Real quick one. John chapter 4. This is talking about belief. But I love this language. I love the imagery of this language. John chapter 4, verse 13. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's how you lay hold on eternal life, isn't it? That well of water is, is just overflowing. It's bursting out of you. Why? Because you're walking in communion and fellowship with you. And here in the context, belief. Belief on him. And they're in association with belief. John chapter 21, or John 20 rather, 
20 and 30, verse 31, these things are written. This is the thesis of the Gospel of John, by the way. The thesis of the Gospel of John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why was John's Gospel written differently than the other three synoptic Gospels? Because it had a purpose. It had a purpose to combat the Gnostic heresy that Jesus was, to, to defend that Jesus was the Son of God and it highlights different miracles, it highlights different events for a purpose, to display the deity of Jesus Christ, okay? So, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life through his name. Now, is that offering eternal life to people that believe? No, right? Belief is the evidence of a regenerated heart. But when you believe, when you believe, talking about entering into the kingdom, what's the first step of entering into the kingdom? It's a public confession of Jesus Christ submitting to believers' baptism. And when you do that, you are entering into the kingdom, but that is your first step of laying hold on eternal life. That is your first step of laying hold on Jesus. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me, is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. But he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You see, when you give up, you know, you're looking at that straight gate and you're like, man, that's tight. That's tight. I'm going to have to give up some stuff. To get in there. And then you, you're looking at it from the outside and you're like, you know, I don't know if that's worth it. I don't know if that straight gate's worth it. I got to give up some friendships. I got to give up. I may even have to adjust my career. I may have to give up a lot of things. And you look at it from the outside looking in and say, you know what? That's narrow. It's tight. <laughs> I don't know if I'm willing to give it up. But once you get in there, though, once you go through that gate, he says, if, you, if you're willing to give that up, you're going to find real life. If you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. You're going to find the abundant life. Matthew chapter 15, excuse me, John 15 to close. And he, he's talking about the vine here. He's talking about abiding in the vine and the fellowship that we have with Jesus. Remember, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And let me kind of supply, because we know that the Trinity's in perfect unity. The Holy Ghost is Jesus. Let me put it a little bit different way. Righteousness, peace, and joy in Jesus Christ. You see? In Jesus Christ. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. If you abide in me, the Father is going to have close attention to our prayers. But then in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, that's what the abundant life is. The abundant life is 
true love. It's true joy. It's true peace. It's true assurance. And it's true fellowship with Jesus Christ. He gave us this word so that our joy will be full and your joy will never be overflowing. Now you can, praise God, God's so gracious to us even in our disobedience. We can feel a little bit of joy when we're not walking like we ought to, but your joy will not, your cup won't be running over. Your cup will not be running over unless you are walking in fellowship with Jesus in the straight gate of discipleship in the abundant life, okay? And understand, that is the life that God intended for you to live. <laughs> I want you to understand that. He bought and paid for eternal life, but he bought and paid for your abundant life. So lay hold on it. Lay hold on it. Press into the kingdom. And the ultimate joy of eternal life is what? Let's make sure we never lose sight of the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose of our life, the whole purpose of everything is what? It's Jesus Christ. It's fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. It's feeling Him in our hearts every single day and not feeling Him in a condemnation way, right? I would hate to feel Him in the way of Him looking at Him the way He looked at Peter. Now, you can feel Jesus that way. I'll tell you, you can feel that conviction. But I don't want to feel that that look of disapproval from the Father. I want, to, I want to feel that assurance in my heart. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's press into the kingdom, right? Press into the kingdom, live the abundant life, and abide in the love and in the joy that Jesus has given us that our joy may be full. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.